What we said at the beginning of Wild Farm was this is the long road to Greg's because um, when food from functioning ecosystems are on the high street, that we've made a difference. We can't just be in a situation where, where functioning ecosystems feed rich people. It's not going to change enough ecosystems. It's not going to solve anything. And so it's how can we get on the high street? That's Andy Cato, arable and livestock farmer and co-founder of Wild Farmed. You're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSM podcast. I'm your host, Bethan Ryder, and in this episode, we hear about Andy's journey from Grammy-nominated musician as one half of Groove Armada to award-winning farmer and all-round trailblazer trying to find a more restorative and sustainable way of growing food. And that's not just through actually farming, but also by creating a community of fellow farmers like him and by working with schools to educate the next generation. Andy's in discussion with our director of food and drink, Jen Creevy, and here she asks what led him to ditch DJing for growing no-dig vegetables and pursuing farming and a life dedicated to improving biodiversity and the food system. I'm going to start right at the beginning. Um, really interesting career as a musician and then a jump to farming. Can you talk us through that journey and, and where that started and, and why you even considered farming in the first place? Yeah, well, it started incredibly randomly in that I was uh, on the way back from a gig and I picked up an article about whatever we want to call it, really, conventional or industrial food production and it was fairly unpretty reading about its consequences for the environment, for human health, and so on and so forth, and even just kind of the future of our civilization, really. And it had this line in it that said, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it, which was a fantastic piece of journalism, but uh, it's got a lot to answer for. But that, that's what got me into the idea of trying to grow vegetables. I came in about the age of 35-ish, completely cold. You know, I'd never planted a seed in my life with an idea to back garden self-sufficiency, really. And that was the start of a spectacularly sized rabbit hole, which has uh, led me into this whole world of soil health, plant health, human health, and, and we are where we are. But uh, it was definitely um, never the plan at the beginning. So tell us about those, uh, those early years. I mean, regenerative farming, as, as we call it now, but maybe you didn't even refer to it that then, um, is what you're doing. But it is, you know, there are huge challenges within that. So talk us through those, those early years. Uh, well, I mean, the early years didn't go very well, really. I mean, in the first instance, it didn't matter too much. I was just sort of learning how to grow vegetables. I was following the advice of my neighbours. This was in France, by the way, who were uh, fantastic farmers, but very much sort of for very understandable reasons, given the hardship that they'd known growing up on their farm when they were younger. But they were very much sort of disciples of the chemical era of farming. And they applied that to their vegetable patch as well. So I was doing the same kind of soil preparation that they were doing, but without using the herbicides that they were using. So I ended up with this kind of jungle of weeds, which is the first thing that sort of set me down this path of finding out about other ways of doing things and learning about no-dig vegetable growing and companion planting. And, and I wasn't thinking in terms of regenerative or anything, you know, but what was slowly emerging was this idea of sort of trying to farm in nature's image rather than being in a state of war against nature. And then that sort of led to a much better version of vegetable production, which became a market garden. Then I started selling these vegetables. And then 
sort of took the ridiculously naive and mad decision to sell my publishing rights to buy a farm and try and do all this on a bigger scale. But when I tried to do that, it unraveled spectacularly because the farm that we'd purchased was a It was quite typical in lots of ways in that it's heavily degraded soil. They grow maize with all the chemical inputs that are often used for that for, you know, 80 years or something. So the soil was in really bad shape. What happens in those situations is that the soils degrade to a point where they're much more suited to grow weeds than they are to grow crops. And so I went in there and did actually a a version of what happened in Sri Lanka recently to deal with their budget deficit. They banned mid-season the importation of agricultural chemicals basically so the whole country kind of went over uh, organic overnight but with no plan and uh, inevitably the wheels came off in spectacular fashion you know but that's being used very disingenuously to in quotes prove that uh, organic farming doesn't work and you can't it's absolute nonsense of course because uh, of the way it was done but in my naivety I did something very similar And so the first two or three years at the farm were incredibly difficult. Um, There's a lot of noughts on checks when you're farming, particularly coming in from the outside with no equipment in the family or, you know, nothing to go on. And so I got to a point where I was in a, in a recognized at least that I was in a war that I was never going to win. And I sort of run out of money and hope and, and everything really. And we were just at the point of trying to cut our losses and get out when I came across the first book that really changed the whole paradigm for me, which was written by a man called uh, Albert Howard. And it was written, published in 1943, actually, but it was called An Agricultural Testament. The message of that really was that nature works by combining a diversity of animals and plants in the same place at the same time. And when we split all that out into our monocultures and and livestock here and, and arable over there, we take this beautiful solution and create all these problems. Uh, and so that's what inspired me to try again. You're listening to the WGSN Create Tomorrow podcast. In this episode, we're hearing all about Andy Cato's journey from playing huge crowds as one half of Groove Armada to turning his hand to farming and all the trials and tribulations along the way. His first attempt in France was a bit of a disaster. So now let's hear from our director of food and drink, Jen Creevy, as she asks how soon he made proper progress. And how quickly did you see progress uh, once you started again? Well, I suppose it de- depends how you, how you define progress, really. Because I was effectively doing two things from that stage. I, I put half the farm down to pasture and got some livestock and started grazing it. Now, that's a, a sort of fairly well-trodden path in a lot of the more popular regenerative, like, like the Kiss the Ground movie, for example, or Alan Savory's work. You know, the idea of reintroducing herbivores in a well-managed way to restore ecosystems is gaining a lot of traction or has gained a lot of traction as an idea. So I was doing that on the one hand, and on the other hand, I was trying various techniques which you could kind of bracket under no-till organic farming, basically kind of ways where you can do mulching you know like you put straw around your tomato plants or whatever you know doing that on a field scale with cereal crops and that requires a few bits of equipment and a few techniques but I was working on those two approaches and both were eventually successful once I ironed out the hitches and what was really encouraging and I've seen this again and again since is that when you give nature half a chance it comes back with incredible speed 
And that's why really the story is a hopeful one in that there's so much low-hanging fruit in terms of our ecosystems and environment and health and nutrition uh, in the way that we farm. Absolutely. And and it is something that you mentioned the states and... Um, so regenerative practices, obviously, they've been around for thousands of years, but are, are now gaining traction for you know some of those issues like soil, for example. But I guess trying to get the farmers to transition to regenerative is really challenging. So, what would your sort of advice to be to other farmers trying to get into this? You know, um, obviously, I'm sure lots of them want to, but there are challenges to get there on, along the way. There are huge challenges, yeah. I mean, the, the thing, the project that I'm involved with now, which is, which is Wild Farmed, that was born out of trying to answer this question, really, because what happened on the French farm was that over time, these cropping techniques started to work. I then got really interested in the idea of how we could grow our cereal crops amongst other plants, amongst the pasture plants that were doing such wonders for the soil. And it slowly kind of emerged into this idea of plant diversity really being one of the absolute cornerstones of building a, a resilient soil improving uh, farming system and that actually the monoculture in other words fields just of wheat or just of oats just of barley whatever whether you're attacking that from an organic mechanical perspective for weed control or a chemical perspective for weed control when you've got monocultures you're in a state of war really because monocultures never exist in nature so it's a constant fight to maintain that so getting away from, from monocultures in various different forms eventually worked to the point where I was getting these harvests of grains that were grown in these recovering ecosystems without the need for any insecticides or fungicides or anything like that. And then you're faced with the issue that the grain market places no value on that at all. It's only how many tonnes you've got. It strikes you as being quite a mad way to organise our food supply. And so that forced me into having to add value, which is another whole chapter involving initially flour milling at the farm and then eventually a bakery and then eventually we ended up baking lots of bread for schools and schools would come to the farm and see where their bread came from and it was a sort of regenerative success story eventually except that when Ed and George and I, my Wild Farm co-founders, when we zoomed out from the farm down in that particular part of southwest France where maize is still the predominant crop and the climate is less and less hospitable what we're seeing is kind of real-time desertification. I mean, it's, it's quite drastic, you know. And as you said in your question, the barriers to farmers getting out of that are many, cultural and financial and practical and all sorts. Whilst it would be fantastic if the whole countryside became a series of micro farms doing versions of what I and lots of growers around the world are doing, that's not how our food distribution system is organised. And our populations are mainly urban, so don't have access to that. So the question at the heart of Wild Farm was, how can we help farmers transition? And part of that is a financial premium. And part of that requires educating uh, consumers that their food choices are the single greatest point of agency on the future of the planet. So we kind of ended up running a kind of public education programme on the one hand and a farmer support programme on the other. This is Create Tomorrow, the WGSM podcast, and we're diving into the progressive farming practices of Wild Farmed with co-founder Andy Cato. Let's hear next where he thinks the consumer is on the journey to understanding the importance of soil health. 
in terms of the consumer understanding then, where do you think we are right now? Because um, I guess, you know, our supply chain has been forced into focus with things like the war in Ukraine and food shortages. So people are more aware of where our food's coming from for the majority. Do you think that has um, elevated the understanding of, you know, food and the planet? Um, But then on the other hand, we've also got a cost of living crisis. So consumers are making choices based on price right now. So where do you think we are in that sort of consumer understanding? I think, and this is absolutely no criticism of consumers because I put myself in this bracket until about 15 years ago. I think we're miles off, to be totally honest. I think there's such a gap in the way that we're educated at school all the way through society that we're so divorced from the ecosystems that sustain us that there's a lot of hard yards there to bring that back to being front and centre. And that's complicated, full stop. And it's also complicated in a world which is very noisy and slogan-based. And this is quite a nuanced story in lots of ways. So um, there are definitely challenges there. I mean, I think that in terms of unleashing change while this ongoing um, educational piece, which is going to be multifaceted and involve all kinds of different people to, to get there, all the way from school curriculums to brilliant social media campaigns of the type that some of the young people in our office are capable of putting together. But in the meantime, I think our biggest chance of shifting things at the speed they need to move is actually because companies are feeling pressure uh, because of their various commitments that they've made um, to sort their supply chains out. And I think actually that's probably... um, a greater point of leverage in the short term. Tell us a little bit more about the education piece. Are you leaning on your um, musician background there to to know what's going to appeal uh, to to people? Uh, Well, there's different aspects to it, you know, and I think that all we can really try and do from a wild farm perspective, because we're a small company sort of doing our best to try and make as much forward momentum in this space as as we can, What we're just trying to get over the line is a fundamental message where people link planetary and personal health to the state of our soils. We're just trying to do that in in various engaging ways. And once you get to that point, it's a fascinating world. And most people who go over that line then choose to look a bit further. So rather than trying to deal with every layer of that, we're just trying to create that first bit of momentum. And uh, that does involve reducing something that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours to, you know, five words sometimes, which in itself is, a, is, a, is an incredibly difficult thing. So, uh, you know, on a kind of macro level, we're just trying to make this an interesting subject, a subject that feels relevant to young people and really that is taken on board as being of existential importance because it's never in, really in the papers or anything, or not yeah, certainly not on the front pages, as it should be every day. So really just to, to do what we can on that level. And at the same time, we're working with schools, only a handful of schools because we've got limited resources. But that's something that we really want to roll out because obviously it's a cliche, but when you introduce these ideas, when you know when we've got classes of children growing polycrop wheat and harvesting it, separating the bits out, making a loaf of bread from it. Well, you learn more in that process than you do from any number of essays, you know. So uh, that's something I was just having a conversation with an with a educational trust about this the other day that we really want to uh, try and expand as much as we can. 
obviously you've got the farmers on board, you're now making some delicious bread. Uh, how did you find um, then being stocked? I think you have a deal with Marks and Spencers, is that right? How did that uh, how did that happen? It's not It's not straightforward. I mean, the, 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 what we said at the beginning of Wild Farm was this is the long road to Greg's because um, when food from functioning ecosystems are on the high street, that we've made a difference. We can't just be in a situation where where functioning ecosystems feed rich people. It's not going to change enough ecosystems. It's not going to solve anything. And so it's how can we get on the high street, which is why um, it's a source of incredible pride. It's, it's a small start, but we are now uh, on the high street. And hopefully that can then, not just for us, but for uh, other groups of growers growing things in these kind of ways, open the door um, to other people doing similar things. But it's really hard, you know, because the conventional food system has created an artificial price point uh, because it externalises all of its costs. In, in the National Food Strategy report by Henry Dimbleby, there's different studies have done about the, the externalised costs of our current food production system. If you average those, because different organisations from the National Farmers Union to the Sustainable Food Trust, different organisations put different weight on different costs in fairly predictable ways. But if you average it, it's £68 billion a year. So you're trying to be competitive with a business that's not paying £68 billion worth of bills at the same time as trying to be affordable for most people. At the same time as being a, a realistic, uh, reliable supplier for a, for a food supply chain that has been built around the absolute predictability or perceived predictability of commodities. So if you want 10 tonnes of wheat at 13% protein tomorrow, you just get it, you know. Mm. And unravelling all of that to be a, a cost-effective supplier of food grown in functioning ecosystems is not straightforward. The fact that we've managed to, to get to that point, you know, in just a couple of years is, I think, is an achievement for which the, the whole team deserves a lot of credit. And do you, I mean, this is probably... Um... A million dollar question, but what do you think the government can do to to help businesses like yourselves? It is literally the million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Because clearly what we can't do because of all the economic pressures at the moment is we can't make food more expensive. It would be completely unreasonable to, to even think about that at the moment. On the other hand, it's also unreasonable that growing systems that don't have 68 billion pounds of externalized costs are not getting any support as a reflection of that. Because really, if you're farming in functioning soil, you should be getting money from the water board because they're not spending millions getting nitrates and agricultural chemicals out of the water. You should be getting money for the carbon that's going into the soil. You should be getting money, however you quantify this, for the fact that the UK is one of the most nature-deprived countries in the world and one in seven species, I think it is, are endangered and we're sorting that problem out by creating habitat. So that all these things which should be contributing towards this sort of farming, because these are real societal costs that we're making a huge uh, contribution to. Cracking that nut is, is very difficult. My, my feeling is that in terms of agricultural policy, unfortunately, history would suggest that governments will rubber stamp a change that's already been made to happen from the bottom up. That's what seems to happen. So that's the, the basis that we're working on. But there could be very simple changes 
to VAT, for example, and on these kind of verifiable, audited growing protocols that are having all these demonstrable uh, benefits that would just really, really help for us to, to make this more and more mainstream whilst keeping it affordable. I'm Bethan Ryder and you're listening to the WGSN Create Tomorrow podcast. When talking about creating tomorrow, what could be more important than the future of food and farming? Next, Jen asks Andy how he thinks big brands can support this progressive farming movement. We speak to big brands uh, quite a lot at WGSN. So again, my, my question would be, you know, what can they do better? You talked about um, how some of these actions are now being forced because they've promised so much in their sort of corporate social responsibility policies, etc. Um, but, you know, should they be partnering with uh, people like yourselves and trying to take this, like you say, to the masses? And how can they do that? Well, they can do that by supporting people like us and other people doing similar things who are delivering on these things, you know. And I think um, one of the things that struck me having conversations with uh, some of these bigger companies is there seems to be a disconnect between the sustainability department and the procurement department. And something that I keep repeating, but I'm going to repeat it now because I think it's really important, is that in our case... If you were to spend a little bit more on your flour from your sustainability budget, then you're going to deliver those benefits right here at home where your customers live in a way which can start from tomorrow, well, from the spring, you know, because the great thing about agriculture is that every spring and autumn the landscape gets re-engineered. We've got two shots a year to turn all this stuff around. It can happen really, really fast or the process can begin really, really quickly. I think just realizing the immense power of procurement budgets to completely transform the way the UK landscape looks in a really short space of time, if we wanted to, is the message that I would give if I, be to, if I was invited into the boardroom to give it. And health is really important as well, isn't it? So we've talked about health of the planet and why these systems um, regenerate our planet, but also the messages that these are better for us personally as well, aren't they, these types of products? Yeah, well, everything, everything's linked. I mean, there's fascinating comparisons on, on, a, on a microorganism level between the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome. You know, we're all part of this chain, so it's no real surprise that when you, you effectively wipe out the soil microbiome that it manifests itself in what is now an epidemic of chronic disease. And a lot of the disease that we normalise now is not normal at all, you know, and there are innumerable studies of communities that live on food that's grown in, in a fully functioning soil for whom these diseases just don't exist. There's nothing equivocal about this, there's no doubt about this. And in fact, just before the Second World War kind of pushed all this to one side and led to the type of farming which we, we've been operating on for the last 70, 80 years, there was a whole cohort of people and, and fascinating reports, including all of the GPs in Cheshire who did this experiment using pregnant women and feeding a large cohort of pregnant women food grown in fully functioning soil. And they wrote a letter to the government saying any public health discussion that doesn't start with soil health is, is doomed to failure. You know, so there's nothing new about any of these messages. And, and effectively what we've created is a system that's been brilliant at making empty calories. And these uh, micronutrient 
deficiencies mixed with the toxic residues of the chemicals that are required to maintain heavily fertilised crops are manifesting themselves in ways which are evidently clear to see in terms of NHS pressures or the extraordinary increase in chronic disease that we're seeing all over the Western world. And again, that's one of the messages that I'm sure you're using in your sort of education piece, isn't it? It is planet, but also personal health. It is. There were two schools in Germany when they they had burger and chips on offering the canteen and everyone was eating burger and chips all the time. And in the first school, uh, the message was, stop eating burger and chips, it's really bad for you. And the response to that was an increase in people eating burger and chips. And, And in a different school... The message was the food companies who are making these burger and chips, they know what this is doing to you. They know the consequences of this type of nutrition on your long-term health and they don't care and you're being taken for a mug. Obviously, it wasn't quite a phrase like that, I imagine, but you get the idea. Is that, that was the message. And the, and the consumption of the burger and chips plummeted. You know? So it's, I think it's important how you, you phrase these things. But the, fir- the first step is we've got to go back a layer from treating the symptoms to talking about the cause. Uh, you know, like my, my son came back from school the other day and they were talking about plant disease in, bio, in their biology lesson. And I said, oh, fascinating, what do you learn about plant disease? And it's like, well, what we learned was that, you know, with so-and-so plant has got a, a fungal disease on its leaf, you can get rid of it with a fungicide and you, and you make sure that you clean your trowels and tools to make sure you don't spread it around the garden. There's no question of why is that there in the first place. You know, in natural ecosystems, you don't walk through a, a forest or an undisturbed meadow thinking, oh, it would have been lovely in here if only someone had come in with the pesticides to keep all the plants alive. You know, it doesn't happen. And so really getting back to this idea that all health starts in the soil in which our food is grown is a critical message that we have to get across. But it's a very, very complicated well, not complicated, but it's just, where, where, you know, where do you begin with this? And the answer is you just begin wherever you can, I think. I'm really glad that you said at the start that, that you know, you're hopeful for the future because nature can find a way. But do you see, you know, regenerative farming as a, a you know, a key pillar of the sort of the future food system? I mean, there are, there are lots of different um, innovators doing different things all over the world whether it's you know cell cultured meat or using things like fermentation um but this seems like a really obvious way for us to sort of get ahead as if more people were to do it um do you see it as a sort of key pillar of the future of food oh i think without it there is no future of food or anything else i think it's of existential importance that we turn this around and there's and and it's low-hanging fruit you know, we know what we need to know. We don't need any inventions to push this on. Uh, there's examples of every staple crop in the world and how it can be grown in a way which is soil positive and based around soil health. I mean, I don't know any of the details about cell culture or fermentation, but my concern with that is twofold. First is that if, if the history of agriculture of the last 80 or 90 years teaches us anything, is that it's when we thought we'd understood what makes plants grow, and we simplified it to our reduced chemical formulas, it's had a whole host of unforeseen and catastrophic consequences for human health and for the planet. And I don't see why any other process of simplification will avoid those issues. It's my gut feeling. That's not based on science. 
And the second part of it is that if you go back deeper in all this, there's a moment where we removed ourselves from the natural world and saw ourselves as apart from it. And I think you can trace almost all of our fundamental existential problems to that division. So farming in a regenerative fashion can not only immediately deal with very practical things like carbon sequestration and purity of our water supplies and ecosystem recovery and biodiversity and flood mitigation and all these very practical things, but also establishing a farming system where our food comes from flourishing ecosystems and we recognise that we're part of this incredible matrix of life and we have a really important role to play in managing these flourishing ecosystems. We don't need to fence off nature because we're going to ruin it. You know, we need to create a, a world in which we're part of these ecosystems and our food comes from these flourishing ecosystems and just get rid of this, this division. Uh, otherwise, I think if we've got kind of fenced off wildlife parks and laboratory-grown food, it's a fairly dystopian vision which doesn't feel like a long-term future to me. I can see how passionate you are, Andy. Do you, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up soon, but um, do you have any time left for music, if I can finish on a lighter note? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I do uh, music with my kids. Uh, my son wants to be a DJ, so he's quite into making house tunes, and my daughter plays a cello, and she's a music lover as well, so do that. And, uh, and I still do some occasional DJ things with, with Tom, my partner in Groove Armada. Initially, because he's so busy with the farming, I'd sort of backed off from that. But actually, I've done a little bit more of it recently. We were in, in New Zealand not so long ago, meeting some farmers there and playing some gigs. And actually, what was interesting was that the energy around all of that in terms of the democratisation of this message about soil health, human health, planetary health, when you're doing some other things around it that are not normally associated with these kind of messages was incredibly helpful. I think really the key in the short term is just getting this message front and centre to an urban population and a youthful urban population that really if we don't get a handle on this soon, the future looks pretty bleak. But the flip side of that is there is so much low-hanging fruit and we can turn this around so fast if we decide we want to do it. Thanks so much to Jen and to Andy for stepping away from his farm to join us on the podcast. And thanks everyone for listening. If you're a WJSN subscriber, you'll find reports covering many issues around progressive farming practices and how we can produce food that's better for people and planet on our food and drink platform. If you want to find out how to subscribe, head over to wgsn.com to discover how you can get access to our service. We're constantly publishing new content focusing on how we can design a brighter, better future for all of our industries. And those include food and drink, interiors, beauty, fashion and consumer tech. You can subscribe to this show on all major podcast platforms. And if you like what you've heard, why not leave us a rating and review on iTunes? I'd also like to thank our podcast producer, Roland Bodnam, and we'll be back very soon to look at our top trends for 2023 with our CEO, Carla Buzazi, VP of Insight, Andrea Bell, and Director of Interiors, Lisa White. It's bound to be a great episode. Until then, stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs>